Well, this morning on Mother's Day, we of course want to recognize all mothers and we praise God for you, but not just those who have children, but those who have served as spiritual mothers. God has done this great thing and does this great work that he often uses people that are not our mothers to encourage us in the faith, to serve as something like adopted mothers, to teach us what it means to, to walk with the Lord and follow after Christ. So I know that for some, Mother's Day is very difficult. And I want to say this with all of my heart. We recognize all of you types of mothers out there who are serving the Lord, whether it be by your own biological children or those that you have adopted or those who you're leading spiritually. We thank and praise God for you. So this morning, on, on this Mother's Day, we begin our, what is something like a mini-series in the Ten Commandments. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and now we've come to the Ten Commandments. I hope that you'll remember, if you were here two weeks ago, that these Ten Commandments are not just out of nowhere. They actually come within the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. They, they defined this relationship that God would have with his people. When God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he gave them directly to Israel. Before this, he had spoken to them through Moses, but here he speaks directly to them. From the mountain down to them, they are hearing God's voice. In response to hearing God's voice, they tremble with fear. So much so that they ask Moses to get back in between them and God, to hear from God and then relay what God's words are to them. Because they fear that if God continues to speak to them, they're going to die. They're fully aware in that moment of the holiness of God, and they are shrinking back, asking for a mediator. (coughs) Now, this is not some insignificant detail in the story. It's actually an important reality that remains true for us today. Sinners standing before a holy God need a mediator. Now we rejoice, brothers and sisters, today because that mediator has been given. It's not a mediator like Moses, but one who is greater and perfect. And that mediator is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh to bear the wrath that we deserve so that we could be united and reconciled to God. This awesome work of God, this new covenant that we are in, means that we have a different relationship with the Ten Commandments. Now, I believe we still have a relationship, meaning they still have value for us today, but it's not the same as it was for Israel. Before we dig any further into these things, I I want to pray. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we confess our sin And trust not in our works, but in Christ's righteousness. We have nothing before you if it were not for Christ and his finished work. And we stand and we rejoice in what he has done for your glory and our salvation. With great hope, we ask that your spirit would use your word this morning to grow us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that your glory would shine forth through us to the world. May the weak be strengthened, may the lost be found, and may the people of God rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, many of the areas in our lives have, to some degree or another, some type of competition. They involve competition. If you're a student, you're competing for the limited spots available in the desired college of your choice or the internship that you want or in the trade that that you find yourself wanting to be in. 
when interviewing for a job, a person competes against other applicants for that job. And then once they get that job, they often have to compete with other coworkers to keep their job, and they have to compete with other coworkers to progress in their field. Sports. I mean, do I have to explain the role of competition in sports? I mean, we, we, so many of us enjoy, we participate in, we watch sports. They, they're fun. Why? Not because everybody wins. You know, after the Packers lose on Sunday, if they go in 0-16, we're not like, you know what? They had a great year. They really tried hard. I saw a lot of progression. A lot of good balls were thrown from Rodgers to the receivers. I think it was a good year. That's not what we're saying, is it? I know, you know, the, the you know, sports build character and all these extra qualities, but ultimately, it's competition. One team is trying to stop the other team from doing something, and they're trying to do the reverse of that team, whether it's, you know, get the ball across the goal line or put the ball in the net or, or in, in, you know, tackle each other and conquer one another. You know, it's on, it's on a sport field, but, but ultimately, there's this competition, and, and it's exciting, and it's, it's enjoyable. We even sometimes feel as though we have to compete for attention, for time with someone that we love, or, or for even the affections of someone we love. We even compete against ourselves, so many of us. We keep track of how far we run or how fast we run, so that the next time we run, we can see if we can go further or faster. Now, these forms of competition <coughs> are not necessarily bad. In fact, they are a normal part of our culture, and some of them are, are both enjoyable and beneficial. Competition can motivate us to improve, to set goals, and to work hard to reach them. Competition can be a tool that builds character and teaches us skills and helps us grow as a person. Competition often results in advances in fields like medicine or education or agriculture, all things that serve the common good. However, there is one form of competition that is always bad, and it resides at the very center of all of our greatest problems. That's a bold and sweeping statement to make, but I believe it's true. The competition that I'm talking about that is at the very center of our problems is our competing with God for supremacy. You heard it in Derek's testimony, and we see it throughout the scriptures. You may not have thought about it this way, but, but this is one of the w- ways that we can understand what sin is. It is our competing with the supremacy of God. Consider this definition of sin from the New City Catechism. <coughs> Every time I quote a catechism, I want to encourage you to pull them out. I know that some of you grew up memorizing things. That, this is good. This is truth. And your kids will love it. You, know, they, they, you might sometimes see that they're not loving it as much, but man, they, they memorize these things, these answers to these important questions. New City Catechism. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So the way that we compete with God's supremacy is by rejecting, ignoring, rebelling against God, not living our lives the way that he has created us to live them. We compete against God by not keeping his commands, by not obeying his word, And the reason why this competition is at the very, why I can say such a bold statement, that it's at the very center of our greatest problems, is because look at what it brings. Our death. Not just our physical death, but our spiritual death. This competition is what separates us from relationship with God. And I like how the New City Catechism puts it. 
Not only this, but it leads to the disintegration of all creation. This is our greatest problem. This competition, of course, began in the garden when Adam and Eve rejected God's word and believed Satan's word. And it is a competition that we all continually repeat. Since the day that we're born, we struggle with competing with God for supremacy. Now, it takes place not in the classroom or in the workplace or on an athletic field, but in our hearts. The competition is over the answer to these important questions. Who is supreme? Who is number one? Who is the greatest, the best, the most important in all of life? Who is in charge? Who most deserves to be treasured and worshipped and adored? To put it very simply, very basic, who is God? Are we God? Are you God? Or is God God? So where do we go from here? Well, I believe the way forward in answering this question and, this, and dealing with this competition is similar to something that Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 25. He said, it's a very interesting statement. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lose your life, you're going to find life. Well, I believe the way to win when it comes to competing with the supremacy of God is to lose is to lose the battle. And the way to lose in our competing with God for supremacy is to gain a right view of the supremacy of God. If we can see God rightly, as he truly is, it will set our hearts right. And make no mistake, friends, if you're a Christian, this is a battle that you wage with God through seasons of life. When things are not going as you want and you say, you know what? I can handle this, God. I don't need you. I'm not, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. I know what's best. So this is a relevant issue for all of us this morning. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I believe was a great 20th century preacher, once said this. Now, I encourage you. I'm, I'm, I might be quoting in the next week's Lloyd-Jones more because I'm reading a biography on him right now. Read good biographies on saints that have gone before us. So good. It will be so good for your soul. It will be devotional-like. As you, you might read something or have heard something about these brothers and sisters who have gone before and served the Lord faithfully and think, man, they were just perfect. Then you read their biographies or their autobiographies and you're like, man, they struggled with the exact same struggles. And the church was struggling with the exact same struggles that it is today. So I put before you Lloyd-Jones and I encourage you, uh, listen to this, this preacher. One of the neat things about Lloyd-Jones, kind of a side note, is that he, he's an old-time awesome preacher faithful to the gospel. But you can actually listen to his sermons because they had invented tapes by the time that he was nearing the end of his ministry. So you can go on the Lloyd-Jones Trust and listen to his, one of his sermons or some of his sermons. And in one of them that I was listening to recently, he said this, What is wrong? What is the matter and how can it be put right? The Bible has the only adequate and true answer to these questions. So church, let us look at the Bible this morning where the only adequate and true answer to our problems of competing with God's supremacy can be found. We're going to be looking at specifically the, the first three commandments this morning. Now I am firmly convinced that each one could be taken separately and we could spend 10 weeks on the commandments. We're going to spend not 10 weeks and we're going to put these first three together because I think there's something to be said about looking at them less comprehensively, but together. That, that I, I'm a former baseball player, and, and I think that with them together, the Holy Spirit might 
excuse me if this is not a good analogy for you, but strike us out. These are three pitches that God is giving towards our heart that can crumble our competition with God and help us to see his supremacy in all things. And so that's why we're looking at them together this morning. And so we begin with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This gets right to the heart of the matter. It's right, right at it. There's no one, a so-called God who is not a God or us, who is equal to or even close to the God of the Bible. No one can compete with the supremacy of God. In the first commandment, we learn this. There are two, ga- two categories. There's the God category, who, who is only filled with one. He happens to be triune, who has revealed himself as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he is up here. And then there's everything else. All of creation, now we can break that down. We know that we're made in the image, that we are the crown of his creation. And yet there's two categories. God, the uncreated one, and us. All of creation, everything, whether it's gold, silver, stuff, money, sports, you know, it's, it's in this separate category. That's what the first commandment tells us. There is really no true competition. Our battle with the supremacy of God is like a gnat trying to fly through a tornado. It's not going to work. We cannot win this. We cannot get through and, and defeat God. And yet, if we were gnats, we would be so hard-headed. I can do this. I can make it to the other side. This hurricane, this tornado has got nothing. When it comes to the supremacy of God, we are like gnats. We cannot win this war with God. He is truly supreme. So if we were just to be logical and rational, our response to this commandment should simply be to recognize the supremacy of God and be done with it. Like God just really just needed to give this one commandment. And yet more needs to be said. More needs to be thought about because, again, the competition for the supremacy of God takes place not mostly in our heads. Yes, we have to think through and understand God's word. The Spirit needs to make these things clear to us, but ultimately, this is a competition for our hearts. So we need an overarching reason to not just affirm the supremacy of God, but to embrace, and I would go so far as to say to enjoy the supremacy of God to bask in his greatness, to say, I want him to be number one. I I want to look up and and recognize that he is so far and so big and so great, so glorious. What is this overarching reason that can stir up our hearts, this motivating factor that can overcome our hearts and cause us to stop competing with God? Why should you and I have no other gods before the Lord, including us? Because God alone saves He alone saves. This can be found even in what God said just before giving the Israelites the commandments. Before he spoke this first commandment to them, he said this in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The people of God are to embrace and enjoy the supremacy of God because he has rescued us from slavery. This is not just you will obey. This is like, I love this God who has saved me from my sins, who is so awesome. The heart-motivating factor for rejoicing in the supremacy of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we believe the gospel, we're recognizing that God is God and that we are not. And we are not and will not be capable of saving ourselves. That puts God in his place. We're at the end of ourselves when we truly believe the gospel. We need God to save us. What does that mean? That we can't, we can't do something that he can do. That he's greater and bigger and more glorious than we are. 
If you're a Christian, you have come to know and believe what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18-19. That you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When the sinner repents and trusts in Jesus Christ, who died as their sin-atoning substitute, they have come to know the one who is supreme. That is Jesus Christ. The gospel not only settles the competition on who is supreme, it at the same time pours out the love and the grace of God that our hearts need so badly in order for us to embrace the supremacy of God. Friends, we're not just accepting Jesus when we become Christians, as if it's kind of like, you know what? We're on equal plane, and you can come into my heart and hang out for a little bit. He can't fit, (laughs) he's too big. He's too supreme. Now he comes and he resides through his spirit, but we're not inviting just somebody to hang out in our lives. We're saying, you are God, and I submit, I trust in, I look to you and you alone to save me from my sins. Because through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God has won our hearts. We can stop competing with him. We desire to love God with all of our heart and mind, soul, and strength because the God who is supreme first loved us. You know, so, so often, you know, we, we work through things with love based on what other people do for us. You know, they, sh- they, they, they do this, we do this, and we have this loving, kind of mutually needing relationship. You give me this, I give you that. When people don't do that, what happens? We're like, you don't love me. We did nothing to initiate this love from God. And he did everything. In the midst of our sin, our ugliness, our rebelling against him, He loved us. He loved us first. That that should stir up the Christian's heart and cause the sinner who is rebelling against God to say, I got to know this one. This one is so great who who is going to love me not based on anything in me but apart from me just because he chooses to love me. Oh church, how he has loved us totally and completely in Christ. You cannot know love. You know, we, we are so about love as we should be. And I find it so sad when people talk about love and they don't know Christ. I mean, it grieves my heart. They've got a shadow of what love truly is. They've got just a little glimpse. I don't look at them and say, oh, I'm better than you. The Christian should never say that. They should say, I want for you the love that I have known and experienced in the glory and the greatness of Christ. I'm a beggar who has been fed and I want to feed you. This awesome, awesome, glorious gospel. The gospel proclaims this sweet truth to our hearts over and over every time we hear it so that we don't just accept the supremacy of God, but we can rejoice in the supremacy of God. Though at times the Christian struggles with sin and therefore will compete with God for who has supremacy in their life, we've been given a new heart. I, I just, it, it totally makes me crazy to think about people thinking that somebody can become a Christian and not have different desires. I'm not saying they're all going to be perfect and some people won't be more mature and stuff. And all that, I get that. I want to guard the doctrine of justification. But at the same time, do you understand what has taken place in a Christian's heart? They've been brought to life. They have new desires. You may have a family member or friend. Maybe you're not a Christian. You have a family member or a friend who all of a sudden doesn't like to do the things that they used to like to do. How did that happen? Because they've been brought to new life. 
given a new heart, and with a new heart comes new de- desires and affections. They want to read a book that, that tells them how to follow Christ, that before they were born again meant nothing to them ultimately. And so our heart's desire, even when we're struggling, even when we're, we're going wayward or lackadaisical in, in following Christ, when we hear the gospel somewhere in our heart, it says, I want God to be supreme. I love him. I trust in him. I need him. God is so good, so loving, so gracious, and he has proven us all of these things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the clincher for us. That is how we fight against ourselves as we compete for God's supremacy. We look at the cross. We look at Jesus. We now move to the second commandment, Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In this commandment, God not only warns people not to worship false gods, but he tells them that they are to worship him the right way. They're not to worship him wrongly. They're not to make things with their hands that represent him and then use them as they worship God. If you, if you look through the pages of Scripture over and over again, God says that you cannot look directly at him and live. Even as Moses, the, the chosen mediator who led God's people out from bondage in, in, in Egypt and, and was the, the mediator between God and Israel in Exodus, even as he, he saw God and, and, and got glimpses of God, he, he wanted more. And he said, God, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, you cannot behold all of my glory. And so Moses was only given a glimpse, a passing glimpse of the glory of God. And so if someone makes something and says, this is what God looks like, and if I pray to this and, and, I, and I call out to God through this, they're looking, in a sense, directly at what they think God looks like. And that is to bring God down to our level. God is so supreme. The second commandment says God is so supreme that we cannot make something and then worship God through it. We cannot. That is to, to attack the supremacy of God. And when it comes to our hearts, because again, it's not just this, this abstract rule. There's something going on in our hearts. Idolatry happens when, when we make someone or something other than God our hope, our greatest happiness and security, that's what's going on in our hearts. Idolatry is a direct attack on the supremacy of God and it will, of course, prevent us from loving God with all that we have because we've put something else in his place that should not be in his place, that cannot fill his, his spot. You know what idolatry has been described as? And it's so clear and so good spiritual adultery. We are cheating on the one true God when we worship false gods. Now, I know that many of us often think of, well, I'm not, I don't worship idols. I don't make something. I haven't bought something. I put it up in my house and I pray to it. But we are more clever than that in our culture today. We have learned to not call it an idol, but we still worship, whether that's our family, our, our career, our fame, money. We just don't call it God, but we still often struggle with worshiping them. 
Well, in his commentary on Exodus, Douglas Stewart gives nine reasons why idolatry was, for the ancients and for us, so appealing. I've put them into three groups. And by considering them, we can see idolatry for what it is. You know what it is? Self-centered. It's all about us in idolatry. It's all about us taking something and saying, I'm going to control this. I'm going to use this for my pleasure. It's going to serve my needs. Because at the very center of all false worship, every single one who does not trust in Christ is worshiping ultimately themselves. They're living for their own glory. They're trusting in themselves. They think their purpose on earth is to exist for themselves. Self-worship. Stewart says first these three. Idolatry is a guarantee. It's easy and convenient. I mean, this, this is fast food, right? This, this, this is why fast food exists. You're guaranteed, you get in line, you pull up to the window, you tell them what you want, it's easy, it's convenient, you pull up to the window, you don't have to cook anything, bam, it's, now I'm not condemning fast food, all right? I'm just saying, like, this, this is our culture. It's, it's so prone to these things. We want something that we, we have a guarantee in that's easy and convenient. An idol is a physical, tangible thing, and it can be a person in our lives, it can be something, it can even be our phones, it can be Facebook, that gives the false promise that a person does not need to have faith in God because their works, whether that be prayers or offerings or certain actions done in front of that idol, will guarantee them what they want. Happiness and hope and joy and comfort. So idolatry is easy in that all that is required is some religious ritual. If you put in the time, if you do your duty, you can get what you want and you can live as you please. Just showing up on Sundays, putting in your time, you know, punching the clock, and then going home and living your life for yourself. That's, that's at the heart of idolatry. It's a struggle that all of us struggle with at times. The idolater might pray when they need something. They might give some money in hopes of buying favor from God and sing some songs at church. If they like the song, maybe they'll sing it. But the idolater trusts in their works, not in Jesus Christ to save them. They think they can manipulate the gods or God or whatever they're trusting in so that they can get what they want. Idolatry, this is, moves us into the second group. Idolatry is selfish, normal, and logical. We love this, don't we? Modern man, selfish, normal, and logical. It's all about what I can figure out. I will believe what I can figure out. Idolatry is materialistic. Stewart says it's built on the idea that the gods could do virtually everything but feed themselves. So if you feed the God that you're worshiping, then you can get from that God. You have this, this way of manipulating that God. That's so often how we come to the one true God. Now, in Scripture, so much of the idolatry deals with pagan and false religions. And so here's where it gets really tricky for us who have grown up in a, either a Christian culture or a post-Christian culture. It's harder for us to recognize where we struggle with idolatry because we've heard the gospel. We, we've gone to church maybe. We've been raised in the church. And so they sneak in and we call them something else. But ultimately, they serve us. And they're based on what the culture says is right and true and okay. What is logical to us. An idolater does not worship God out of love for God, out of amazement for the grace that they've been given in Christ. Instead, they worship God so that they can get stuff from God. For the idolater, God exists for the worshiper rather than the worshiper existing for the glory of God. And scripture says the exact opposite. Here's getting at the very heart of the matter. Why do you exist? 
God's word says the answer is for his glory. You say, if you do not worship him, that you exist for yourself. That your purpose on this earth ends when you die. That's, that's what you say ultimately if you are an idolater. It's just to make things better, but ultimately this is done. It's over. This means nothing. God says, I've created this to display my love and my grace and my goodness and my glory. And I've made you in my image for relationship with me so that you might display my greatness to the world. Lastly, idolatry is all about pleasing the senses, indulgence, and sexual immorality. Idolatry calls what God has defined as sin, not sin, but good. The way you worship if you're an idolater is by sinning. In fact, so much of ancient idolatry centered on getting drunk, gorging on food, and sleeping around. You wanted to worship the pagan gods? That's what you did. You went to the temple, you slept with the prostitute, you got drunk, and you ate a bunch of food. I mean, this is paradise for those who reject Christ. Feeding the senses, living for oneself. Now, if you are wondering whether or not idolatry is truly present today, consider the glorification and the acceptance of these things in our culture. We make getting drunk cool. God says that is evil and that is hurtful to you and others. We think as long as, as, as you don't drive drunk, it's okay. It's actually fun and right. You can do these things. God says, this is not what I created you to do with this alcohol. This is not what this is for. We have, we have books that, that make millions of dollars glorifying misuses of sex. We watch shows and the most popular shows on television you twisted God's beautiful purpose for sex within the confines of marriage into something else. We are a nation of idolaters. And here we reside as the church, this little embassy of God's kingdom within this country struggling, hearing these lies, saying, no, this is good. This is what you should live for. And they oppose one another. And we were, we're going to struggle. We can look at our kids, but we can look in our own hearts. Idolatry says, if it feels good, do it. Live not for God, but for the moment. <laughs> these are the, the statements of, of our culture. This is, this is what the culture says. Live for the moment. Do what feels good. And there's no side effects. There's, there's no harm. There's no sin. You determine your own way. Now, some call this simply being immature or college or the weekend. But you know what God calls it? He calls it idolatry. Friends, the real issue with idolatry is that it denies the supremacy of God because it rejects what God says in his word. And it denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. When we turn to other false gods or make people or things our gods, we are believing that Jesus Christ is not enough. This is where it get, can get really hard in our hearts. Families are good. They are blessings from God. S money, stuff, houses, cars, they all can be great blessings from God. But when they take this elevated role in our lives and in our hearts, they become idols. The Bible says that not only is Jesus sufficient for all that we need, he is more than enough. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Scriptures tell us not only that Jesus is enough, he is more than enough. Christ alone can save us, sustain us, and satisfy our souls. And so the second commandment tells us that idolatry is worthless. You know why we're so against idolatry? Because it leads to death. I'm not, I don't want people not to have fun. I want them to have joy. And that joy comes from knowing the Lord knowing why they exist, and living rightly with God, with others. That brings us to the third commandment. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The focus of this commandment is on God's name and all that is connected to his name. People misuse names all the time, don't they? If you have a last name like mine, people mispronounce it all the time. You don't even need to have a hard name and people seem to, Williams. It's not Williams. It's, not, it's Williams, all right? Like, I don't, that's not my last name. My name's Dufek, and that's a harder one to pronounce. And so people will sometimes say Dufek. It's, you know, let's say Mr. Dufek, Pastor Dufek. It's Dufek, you know? Or trying to, trying to you know, make fun of me. In, in the past, I've, I've been called Doofus, Mr. Doofus, you know? What this statement says from God, you know, if I were to rail and just get on my soapbox and say, how dare you mispronounce my name? How dare you call me Mr. Doofus? I don't don't have any standing on it. It's just my name, you know. But God says his name is so holy, he is so supreme, that even his name is to be treated with reverence, with awe, because it encapsulates all that he is. It, it, It represents him. His reputation. And so we can even see in this third commandment the supremacy of God. Your name might be Bill or Bob or Jill or Jenny. God's name is I am. Lord, Yahweh. He self-names himself I am. We name ourselves after other people, you know, some meaning. This means beloved. This means doctor. Whatever. God says I am. I am. I am the one who existed before all time, who does not have a name like you, whose name itself is above and beyond all other names. And so we continue to see in these three commandments the supremacy of God in all things. You also need to realize that to take God's name in vain doesn't just mean to to misuse his name or to mispronounce his name. It means to carry or bear God's name in such a way that dishonors God. His name carries his essence, his reputation. And if you declare yourself to be a Christian, then you now bear his name in the world. And so to take God's name in vain is not just to say his name in in an irreverent way, to use it as a cuss word in in common language. It's also to be a, a professing believer and to dishonor God. Now, we know that we're not gonna honor him perfectly, that we're gonna struggle with this. And yet, in our heart, our desire, knowing the supremacy of God is that as we live in relationship with other people, as we live not for ourselves but for his glory, we would make much of Christ. And that is to honor God's name. It's not just with his, his saying his name or using it as a cuss word. It's to live rightly, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then to love people because we love God. What I find absolutely astounding when thinking about this commandment is that as great and as awesome as God's name is, and it is, And as much as it displays the supremacy of God, and it does, you know what we sinners are told to do in Scripture? What we are encouraged to do? Call out his name. These same lips that have dishonored him so many times, that have been used to sin against the supreme God who created the universe and sent his Son, are now, with God's blessing, to say, Jesus, Think about the paradox here. Do not dishonor my name, but because of my love and my grace, say my name in faith. When we come to Christ, when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, we cry out, God, Lord, Jesus, save me. We cry out his name. 
Romans 10.13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who says, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, will be saved. The wonder and love of God in his supremacy. Friends, in, in the first three commandments, we find more than enough to establish the supremacy of God in our hearts. God is the only God. All idols are nothing. If you're living for someone other than Christ, you're living for something that will let you down. You will go through life turning from one to another after another. You will put people, a woman or a man, in that place where only Christ can, can fulfill your needs and they will let you down. And as we heard this morning in, in the testimony, they will lead you to destruction and hopelessness. But if Christ is one, if he is supreme in your heart, You'll have all that you need. All other false gods are cheap, weak imitations of God and will do you only harm. And even in God's name, we can find his supremacy overall. His name is above every name. So having looked at these commandments this morning and seen the supremacy of God, I want to ask you, who is supreme in your heart? Who right now, as you sit here and, and consider God's word and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who right now is supreme? Who has supremacy in your life? Does God or does someone or something else have supremacy? How do you know? How, how do you know who is supreme in your heart? Who are you trusting in? Who are you looking to for your greatest joy and affections? Who stirs your heart the most? Yeah, who, who gets you going? Who, you know, we look forward to things all the time. Many of you are looking forward to, to dinner tonight with, with your mother or your wife or whoever. You're, you're looking forward to, you know, the, the, a basketball game or, or the weather being nice. What are you most looking forward to in life? Is it growing and knowing and, and basking in Christ? Or is it someone or something else? That's how you know who is supreme in your heart. Are you competing with God for supremacy, opposing his will for your life, living for yourself rather than for Christ? You cannot win this battle. You're like a gnat flying through a tornado. Our aim, our goal, and we cannot forget it, even though sometimes we do, is to make much of Jesus Christ with our lives. Church, when we behold and we enjoy the supremacy of God, we will have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. And you know what this leads to? And this is what we want rejoicing, glad, smiling excitement in the people of God in their hearts, overflowing passion for evangelism. When I see the supremacy of God in all things, when Christ is number one in my heart, you know what happens? I worship God and I love you more and better. And that's what we want to do as, as the church. We want to worship God, we want to love him, and we want to love one another. And so Christ must be supreme in our hearts. If he is not, we will go off track and we will live for our glory and not for his. And we were created for his glory. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are supreme even when we struggle to acknowledge and rejoice in your supremacy. You and you alone reign over all and are most worthy of our hearts, affections, and worship. You have won our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ you sending your one and only Son so that we sinners might be reconciled to you through his death and resurrection has conquered our wayward hearts. Father, we pray that we would rejoice and understand and be excited more and more over your supremacy. 
We pray for those who are struggling right now, battling against you, looking to false gods who will only fail them and lead them to destruction. May you show them your glory. May you reveal to them the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. Father, for us, may you stir in our hearts as a local church your supremacy so that we might enjoy you more and better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.